Inner Mailbag, Overcoming Procrastination, the Input Hypothesis, Time Management, and Motor Skills. So recently I asked my readers to send me some of their questions. Here are some of the most interesting and common ones. How can I overcome procrastination? The research on procrastination indicates that a major reason we fail to buckle down and get to work, or our studies, is simply that we find the task unpleasant and putting it off is more immediately rewarding than getting to work. Now, I think this is a pretty banal observation, but it's important to know what this excludes. The research does not, for instance, find that procrastination is strongly associated with perfectionism, something that's widely believed, nor is anxiety clearly associated with more procrastination. If you're anxious, you might even work harder because you're afraid of failing. In terms of overcoming procrastination, I think this is why it's so valuable to develop a productivity system, some kind of guiding framework that tells you what to work on and when. Over time, if you stick to the system, the decision of what to work on gets delegated to that system and you learn to simply abide by it. This eliminates a lot of the excessive decision making that can lead to procrastination. However, I think it's also important to point out that procrastination can be very useful. Our motivational hardware is designed to balance out many competing interests and needs. So a person who is pathologically incapable of procrastinating would also likely be someone who sticks it out working on a lot of tedious, low value tasks. While we want to keep our procrastination level low, you should also embrace some of it as your motivational system functioning properly. What do you think of Stephen Krashen's input hypothesis? Krashen's input hypothesis is an influential and controversial language learning theory that basically states that your exposure to lots of language that you can understand is both necessary and sufficient for complete fluency in a language to occur. Additionally, Krashen has argued for a distinction between learning and acquisition, arguing that languages cannot be practiced, thus there's no value in encouraging people to speak a language, nor can they be taught, thus there's no value in explaining grammar or correcting people's mistakes. Judging from the sidelines, I'm somewhat baffled by the theory's popularity. Consider, for most skills, instruction tends to outperform unguided learning. The literature reviews for language learning show the same thing, Yet this evidence is often dismissed by proponents of Krashen's view as evidence of learning and not true acquisition. People in input-only learning environments tend not to acquire native-level productive fluency in the language. This suggests that the speaking part of immersive learning isn't superfluous. Adults and adolescents who are over the age of 10 to 14 rarely achieve complete native proficiency in a language despite decades of full-time exposure. Krashen's theory chalks this up to an affective filter that prevents pure input from working its magic. But it seems implausible to me that the near-universal success of 6-year-olds in acquiring their native language, but exceedingly rare success of 26-year-olds in acquiring native-level pronunciation and grammar, can be explained this way. Finally, we already have a good idea how implicit, fluent knowledge is acquired in other skills. Why would those same laws of skill acquisition not also apply to language learning? Even if there are some additional language-specific mechanisms in the brain, it seems likely that adult language learners can make use of the skill learning system that we have for learning other skills as well. Outside of academic circles, the main influence of Krashen's theory in language learning is language learners who prefer to read and listen as their primary method for learning as opposed to conversation practice. Now, despite this not being my preferred approach, I'm not really antagonistic against this method for learning a language. 
I think they're probably a bit slower, but given that speaking opportunities can be limited when you're not living in the country that speaks it, you can probably go quite far just by reading and listening a lot. Even if I think some speaking practice and some formal instruction is probably helpful for most learners. I find myself struggling with anxiety and depression and it makes it harder for me to work on some of my key goals. What should I do? Well, my first suggestion in all these situations is that if you're struggling with obsessive negative thoughts is to seek therapy if you can, particularly therapists that work with cognitive behavioral therapy as it tends to have the greatest empirical support. Cognitive behavioral therapy tends to perform similarly well to pharmaceutical treatments, although these also seem to work well too, so many people do well on both. But the basic idea is that we can get into recurring patterns of thinking, feeling, and action that mutually reinforce. So, person with social anxiety, for instance, might have an unpleasant feeling about going to a party. This triggers vivid imaginations about what might go wrong. Maybe they say the wrong thing and embarrass themselves. This anxiety builds and builds until they cancel the invitation and stay home. This can cause some momentary relief, but it reinforces the thought and behavior patterns that led to that avoidance, entrenching the anxiety further. Now, noticing those patterns and disabling them can be a major step to reducing their grip on you. If you cannot access therapy, because it's incredibly hard to access in most places, then I recommend reading more about cognitive behavioral approaches, so you might get the gist of what it might look like for you to work on it. Still, I'm not a clinical psychologist, so everything I've just said ought to be taken with a grain of salt. What do you think is a more effective approach? Managing your day by tasks or managing your day by time? So I used to be a wholehearted advocate of the task-based approach, so make a daily to-do list and then work on it until it's finished. And the benefit of this method is that it focuses you on getting work done. I find it tends to work well when you have a bunch of predictable tasks that need doing, there's no pressing need to do more towards your projects, and there will always be a strong urge to procrastinate. So this creates an incentive to get it all done so you can enjoy the rest of your day. However, I think it works less well when the projects you're working on are open-ended or the tasks you're trying to work on are hard to predict in advance. I think the issue of productivity systems is that there probably aren't good universal ones. Instead, there are systems that work better or worse given your typical tasks and goals. When I was a regular college student, I found the task-based system worked really well for me, but I find it breaks down in other environments. Similarly, Cal Newport's time-blocking system works really well when you're intensely busy and have quite a bit of scheduled appointments already on your calendar, but it might also feel like overkill if you're capable of getting your work done without it. I am curious to learn more about how blocking eyes might affect motor skill learning. A piano player or a tennis player that do drills blindfolded or with one eye covered, for instance. I'm not sure, honestly. My understanding of the motor skills literature is somewhat weaker than other aspects of educational psychology. I know that when I was learning to touch type, we taped a sheet of paper at the top of the keyboard and typed underneath to prevent us from looking at the keys. And that encourages you to look at the document you're transcribing, to memorize the key positions directly rather than having to look at them. However, a lot of other skills seem innately coupled to the visual kinesthetic feedback loop, so doing it blindfolded would likely cause performance to deteriorate for an unclear purpose. So I wouldn't try to ski down a mountain blindfolded. One thing I can say is that I think introducing novel constraints is often a good way to shift a motor pattern into a new equilibrium that would have been hard to achieve through conscious effort alone. There's interesting research showing that people tend to acquire movement skills better when their attention isn't actually on the movements themselves, but on the goal of the movement. This suggests that clever constraints may be beneficial to help you shift out of bad habits. Thanks for sending your questions. I look forward to hearing new ones soon. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to get five of my audiobooks for free, just go to scotthyoung.com slash podcast. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G dot com slash podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.